Hey, I got a question for you. What would you do if you knew for a fact that next month you were going to get 500 bucks straight up money, not a credit or a voucher or gift card, just cash, and you'd be able to spend it on whatever you wanted? No restrictions. Nobody saying, hey, here's $500, but you got to spend it on rent or you got to spend it on healthcare, or you got to spend it on food. You would get to decide. And what if you knew that this money was going to come even if you got sick and you couldn't work as many hours as you planned or they cut your schedule or your kid had a thing going on and you had to miss work to take care of your kid's thing, dentist appointment, parent teacher meeting, whatever. What if you knew you'd get this money anyway? And what if you knew that this wasn't just going to be the one time, that the money was going to come again the following month and the month after that and the month after that? If the money was guaranteed, what would you do? How would you live your life differently? Some of you are listening to this right now and you're like, honestly, that's my current situation. I wouldn't do anything differently. Maybe you have a job with a salary that you feel is pretty secure and You know that your paycheck is coming, not depending on how many hours you work, but it's going to look the same no matter what. And that's awesome. I mean, you could lose that job or you could get sick and have to take a leave. I hope you don't. I hope that doesn't happen to you. But anyway, maybe some of you are in this situation already because you have family helping you or you inherited some money or you got some investments or made a lot of money in a previous career. That's terrific. Maybe you already know the answer to these questions because this is your reality already. But some others of you are listening to this and the things that I'm describing sound absolutely wild. They sound unreal. Maybe you work a job where you do worry a lot about your hours getting cut or you feel like you can't take time off when you get sick. Maybe you haven't been able to work at all. Maybe you're disabled. Maybe there aren't good job opportunities where you live. Maybe you're undocumented and that limits the type of work that you can do. Maybe you're struggling trying to go to school and earn your keep at the same time. Maybe you're busy caring for a family member. Maybe you work a lot, but don't make enough to the tune of $500 being a sure bet for you. This is a show about what happens when you give people money. What happens when a group of people who maybe spent a lot of their lives not knowing what their financial situation would be from week to week not knowing if the essentials of their survival will be taken care of. What happens when those people don't have to worry about that as much anymore? This is a show about the choices people make, the dreams they pursue, the things that had been concealed that now get unlocked when your money is guaranteed. I'm your host, Eve Ewing. I'm a writer and a professor. A lot of my research is related to race, inequality, especially in the world of education, how our country got to be so unequal, and what we might be able to do about it. I also write poems and comic books and essays and all types of other stuff. I wrote this script that I'm reading to you right now, so I feel like all in all, I'm doing pretty good. I live and work in Chicago, my hometown, and if you catch me on any given day, I'll talk your ear off telling you everything that's dope about this city. But beyond the usual attractions, the food, the music, the history. Chicago is a hot spot right now for something else that's pretty interesting. Guaranteed income pilot programs. Mm, different type of pilot. Sorry, me and my producing team, there is no dorky wordplay that is too undignified for us. But yeah, by pilot, I mean something that's happening on a trial basis so we can learn from it. Right now, around the greater Chicagoland area, There are all these pilots going on, these trial programs where regular people can receive a monthly unrestricted direct cash payment guaranteed every month for a certain time period. And there are a whole bunch of researchers doing quantitative analysis of what happens when people receive this income. Does crime go down? Does unemployment go up? Does it boost homeownership? Do the White Sox win the pennant? Okay, not that part. But in this show, we're curious to learn something a little different. What are the stories of the people who receive the money? What happens to the texture of their lives when all of a sudden certain things that used to be precarious, a little iffy, are suddenly guaranteed? We're interested in this because, well, 
We like cool stories of people pursuing things that are important to them, but also because we suspect it may tell us something not just about these individual folks, but about people in general, about our country, about our relationship to money and work and our dreams and our relationship to the possible. So it's going to go like this. In each episode, you'll meet a guaranteed income recipient, someone from around Chicago who's receiving direct cash payments. And we'll learn a little about them, their lives, and their story. We'll see together how these different pilots are unfolding. But this episode is a little different and a little special. I figured before we go on our guaranteed adventure, we should make sure that we all understand some of the nuts and bolts of how this thing even works. So we're going to talk to three experts. We'll talk to Damon Jones, an economist, Juliana Bidadanere, a philosopher, and Michael Tubbs, who, as the mayor of Stockton, California, launched one of the first guaranteed income programs in the United States. Let's get into it. We'll start with Damon. Could you start by telling everybody what your job is? My job is being a good husband. Um, uh, My name is Damon (laughs) Jones. Okay, I forgot to tell you an important detail. Our first guest is a nationally recognized researcher on the issue of guaranteed income, but he is also married to me. Our producers convinced me that we should not disqualify his expertise based on that detail. Okay, back to the interview. I'm an economist. I study public policy, inequality, racial equity, household finance, and tax policy. Some of my work has led me to give advice to different policymakers. So I've attended city council meetings, been on task force with the city of Chicago, testified before Congress, and last year spent a year working in the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. Could you maybe start by telling us what guaranteed income is? And also why we don't say universal, why you don't say universal basic income, like what's the difference between those two ideas? Yeah, each of those terms, universal basic income, guaranteed income, refer to a piece of the total policy design. And depending on how people use it, uh, it could get confusing. So it's important to be careful about which terms you use, you know, depending on what you mean. So the universal part means that there's some payment And if it's truly universal, then everybody gets a payment, let's say from the government. The basic part of universal basic income usually means that this is an amount of money that would um, allow you to meet your basic needs or necessities. So enough money for you to be above the poverty line. And then income usually means that this is going to be a cash payment as opposed to just giving you food or housing, which is an in-kind benefit. Cash benefit normally will have no strings attached. You get to spend it how you want. So UBI was a term that a lot of people latched onto. In practice, a lot of these programs aren't truly universal and they may not meet your basic needs. The guarantee, what that signifies is that your income can only go so low. And so if nothing else, you will at least have this amount of money guaranteed to get what you need. Um, It may not necessarily be enough to get you above the poverty line, though. The people that we're going to be talking to on this podcast, all of them have qualified in some type of way based on the policy goals of that pilot. So I guess I wonder whether these are payments that should go to everybody or payments that you should have to qualify for. I think we should think about two parts. One is, if my income gets low enough, is there going to be a safety net to keep it from going below that amount? And that's the guaranteed part. Both a UBI and a guaranteed income is going to have that safety net part. That, I think, is the most important thing, that if your income drops below a certain amount, this safety net catches you and gives you what you need. The universal part, I think the reason why people have uh, moved away from using that term is because it could just get confusing. I can make a program universal by sending out a check to everyone, and then I can raise some people's taxes to pay for it. And then so some people are getting a payment and paying more in taxes. Probably what you should think about is a scale of how soon do you start to be disqualified for this program? And there's a trade-off there. The more that you create rules about who can get it, then you can give more to a smaller group of people. But you're also going to deter some people from getting it who you actually want to reach. So you're trying to box out certain people who, as a society, we think that they may not need this. 
And some of the people you're going to box out are people who we actually want to reach. There's also a question about if you make it more universal, you build more political support for a program. And then another question about universal is, does everyone have the opportunity to get this, um, even though everyone doesn't necessarily receive it? So what do I mean by that? Like unemployment insurance is pretty broad and universal, but you only get it when you lose a job. So it is a safety net that is there for everyone when they fall into a certain position, but not everyone may find themselves needing to claim that. A guaranteed income is that income floor. And if anyone finds their income falling too low, this safety net will catch them. Those are some of the questions. If we make it more universal, will we have more political support? For people who want to oppose these policies, though, they'll use that to maybe try to undermine the policy. So they'll say, if you give it to everyone, then it costs too much and we can't do it. So that makes me think of another question. What are some of the critiques of guaranteed income along the lines that you just talked about, which is like based on sort of a general disregard for poor people? But then also a different part of that question is, are there critiques of guaranteed income that you think are valid and that are not based on that type of disregard? You never know what's in people's hearts, but the the less compelling arguments against it, people will say, well, if you get guaranteed income, you don't have to work as much. People will exit the labor force. There will be less employment. Uh, People won't work as much. That could be true, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because what people do with their time when they're not working is also valuable. They could be taking care of their children. They could be providing care for other dependents in their family. Also, this is always a problem for poor people that they're not working, but it's not consistent with what you see elsewhere in society, which is how can I become wealthy enough to retire at age 25? That's like a poster child of like capitalism to make so much money that you don't have to work anymore. You're like at the top of the, the food chain, if you can do that. So there's that's a little inconsistent. Then people will say other things that are even more clearly problematic, like, oh, if you give this type of income, you know, we'll have lower marriage rates. If I give you money and the first thing you do is leave your marriage, you know, maybe that's for the best. Okay. So some of this is about control and economic agency. So those arguments just fall flat. They seem to be coming from a uh, place of being used to having certain control and then losing some of that control. Like this gives workers too much control over their own career. If you have a cushion, if you have this outside source of income, you can be more selective about where you work. You can search for the best job for yourself. You can bargain for better wages. So that's another argument against basic income that is um, a little suspicious when it's coming from someone who's losing control. Are there things that you've heard from colleagues or critical perspectives where even if you don't agree, you're like, okay, that's a point to consider or that's something we should account for? When you give people guaranteed income and some people decide not to work as much, one thing that we lose as a society is if you're not working, you're not paying taxes and, you know, we basically lose some tax revenue. That has a cost because politically, we're usually tying how much we spend to how much we get in tax revenue. That's a legitimate concern. People are obviously leaving for their own well-being. And I think their own well-being and the reason why someone might not work anymore if they have a guaranteed income, that benefit outweighs this cost. And so the worry about people not working is not completely absurd, but I don't think that it rises to the level that you would do some version of this policy. What are the other concerns that people have? So people have concerns about like how much you spend on this program. And it is true that how much you spend has a political cost. So you have to spend some political capital to pay for a program. People who have different priorities and you will use that to constrain what else you can do. But we spend a lot of money or we give a lot of people relief throughout the income distribution. We, we subsidize people's homes. We subsidize their retirement savings. We subsidize their health insurance, especially for middle class and upper middle class families. There's a lot of tax loopholes that they can enjoy. We subsidize people going to college. We do a lot of things in the tax system that cost money. I think that when the support is going to the poorest people, Sometimes you see that people are a little more fervent in their concerns about how much this costs. 
So yeah, it 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 will cost us in the sense that government spending will go up, but the effects of this type of support, especially on children, to me makes it worth it. So the question is, if you did a guaranteed income program, are you going to have this mass exodus from the force or is it going to be harder? Is it going to cause the economy to not grow as much? And we don't have a lot of examples like that to study. Even when we have pilots, the pilots are usually hitting a small fraction of the actual population, their pilot programs. In Alaska, there is a guaranteed income program, what they call the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend. Every Alaskan gets a check around October on the order of $1,000, sometimes higher, every year. Every kid, every adult. So wait, so if you're a, a baby, if you're one year old, you get a, this $1,000 check? Yeah, probably go, it goes to your parents. I think if you're incarcerated, you don't qualify. What year did this start? The dividend started in like 1981, 1982. More or less a stack a year since 1981. Yes. And so... If you look at Alaska before and after this program is introduced and you try to think about other states that look like Alaska and compare the two, you don't see really strong evidence that people are working less in Alaska relative to other places. Some people might say, well, instead of doing these direct cash transfers, you should invest in programs that solve particular problems for people. This is how most of our other social programs work, right? So it's like, well, instead of just giving you cash to go to the doctor, we're going to have Medicare. Or instead of just giving you cash for housing, we're going to have these vouchers and Section 8 and public housing. Instead of giving you cash to buy food, we're going to do this you know, food assistance program that only allows you to buy food. So basically, like, what would you say to people who say, oh, we shouldn't just be giving people cash. We should be showing up these programs that address particular needs. I'll add on the cherry on top because then you don't know what people are going to spend the cash on or people aren't going to use it correctly. But even if they don't say that, just what do you say to people who are say we should invest in those type of social programs instead? Yeah, I would say a couple of ways I would respond to that. So the first one is we don't know how people would spend their money. My answer to that is none of our business, how people spend their money. Like when I get paid, like no one is coming and saying, just make sure you don't buy any tobacco or alcohol with, with your paycheck. They just pay me. And no one ever complains that we need to stop people in the finance sector so much money because who knows what they're going to buy with this. We need to pay them in vouchers to you know Grubhub. Everybody else just gets paid and we don't ask what they're going to do with that. People with low levels of income or who are vulnerable or marginalized. If they're paying their money for some of these things, let's provide better alternatives. Like if you're self-medicating in different ways, like maybe if you had access to healthcare, you wouldn't be doing that. Health insurance is one thing where it's very complicated and the private market has a lot of known problems that I won't go into that make it sometimes hard for even people who have enough money to get healthcare to get the healthcare they want, let alone people who don't have enough money to get it. The other thing is that there are some things where you can give money to parents and you don't necessarily have control. Like the kids don't have full control over what they get. And so some things you might just want to provide directly to children to make sure that they get it. There are certain things that you just may want to guarantee that kids have and just giving cash to their parents doesn't necessarily guarantee that they have it. But all that aside, giving people cash also has a lot of benefits because and rather than us knowing exactly what you need, can give you cash and let most parents are trying to take care of their kids and give their kids what they need. And giving you that flexibility allows you to do the best you can or to know what your child needs. SNAP, it's supposed to give you support for food and you can spend it on certain things. Uh, you have a card that you can swipe. So in a lot of ways, it's like cash. There are certain things you can't buy. You can't buy prepared food. Which means you can't buy a rotisserie chicken and just be like, oh, cool, I save time. Yeah, if you and you could be working a lot. And actually what you need is quick food that's convenient because you don't have a lot of time. SNAP is supposed to be that you buy the food, you prepare it yourself so that it can be affordable and nutritious. But again, no one asks me if my food is nutritious when they pay me. They just give me my paycheck. I go buy what I want. I can buy caramel cake or whatever, you know, but I think that you should just give people cash if you want them to be able to get food. When you look at the evidence, when you give parents cash, their kids tend to do better in a lot of different ways. 
they live longer, they go to school longer. When they grow up, they're more likely to have a job, they earn more. So it looks like their parents are investing in their kids on average. When you hear the stories of people receiving guaranteed income and some of the work that you've done, like with the city task force, do you find yourself thinking about the difference that guaranteed income would have made in your family growing up? Or do you have a sense of like, you know, if this had been something that your family had received, what that would have done or what you all would have done with the money? The reason why I went into social sciences and was interested in researching these questions is that growing up in New Jersey, where I lived, my neighborhood was relatively segregated, but I was able to see like across different neighborhoods, um, you saw very different levels of resources and things like that. And what I did in my graduate studies was to think about these questions related to inequality and think about how we try to solve those problems. Between undergrad and graduate school, I actually worked as a volunteer tax preparer in Washington, D.C. And people would come and I would help them do their taxes. And I would see people get these um, refunds. And I became very interested in what was going on there. Why are people getting these big refunds? Where is that coming from? How does that affect their lives? And kind of always been interested in that question. Myself growing up, a guaranteed income or a steady payment like that could help when there would be things that get thrown off every now and then, you know, light bill or heating bill, just uh, that cushion for those rainy days. Um, that's the type of thing that I think that this kind of guaranteed floor can help with. There's sometimes there's that uncertainty and things may all go wrong at the same time. And then you have that cushion. Yeah. Hearing you say that, it reminds me of certain times when I was growing up when like my mom was laid off or my mom dealt with a, a very serious illness when I was in high school and wasn't able to work for a period of time. And, you know, I remember her taking different types of part-time wage labor. There's sometimes when people are, you know, you said, Mostly your family was fine in this year and then maybe this next year it was rough or maybe it was month to month or week to week. When you look at that over the course of somebody's period of their life, you can think about that on average as like it's a wash, but that's not how it actually works in adolescent and youth and childhood development, right? Which is like that time when the lights went off or the heat went off or things felt scary or things felt unsafe or things felt insecure that's like a moment in somebody's life that interacts with where they are developmentally, where they are socially. And that's something that, you know, can bring a sense of precarity to a young person's life that really has a lasting impact, even if financially it might only be a week or a month or a year. Yeah. I mean, it's the way our society is set up. Okay. This is the day that you're going to take some standardized tests and, you know, you don't have hot water, you know, that can follow you for the rest of your life. You know, you want to just be able to think that society thinks that you're valuable enough that we don't want to just let you fall off this cliff, especially children, because children, they didn't have any control over anything. And as you said, any of us at any point can fall into that situation where we need we need that safety net. And obviously, that put me in mind of the pandemic, where Many people in this country, perhaps for the first time in their lives, maybe they didn't think of themselves categorically as the quote unquote type of person who needs help. And suddenly they were uh, people who needed help economically, people who needed help in terms of their health care. I think a lot of people were maybe a little shocked to discover that the country did not have their back in the way that perhaps they had assumed. Or maybe they just never thought about it because they didn't think that they were that type of person, whatever that meant to them. Do you think that the pandemic and some of the forms of assistance that were received by people during the pandemic has changed the political environment in terms of how folks think about guaranteed income? I think it has. The pandemic hit and luckily the lawmakers were like, we got to do something. We just can't do nothing. And as a side note, there are ways to build your economy so that when these things happen, you automatically kick in support for people. We call those automatic stabilizers. We would have been in a better position if we had those in place. But that happened. This child tax credit that I talk about happened. And regardless of how those things got into place, we saw, like I said, a child poverty went down by 50%. That let people know like, how much of this is a choice, how much of the poverty that we tolerate, how much of it is a choice. That program expired, unfortunately. But I think that that did help to build momentum. 
they also gave a lot of support to state and local governments. They said, you know, we we went through this in a great recession. We just got to pump some money out to a bunch of cities. It turned out that a lot of cities ended up having surplus money because of that. And then they thought, like, what could we do with this money? And so a lot of places did these guaranteed income pilots. So the the pandemic was horrible, but, you know, by virtue of us being in that crisis, the federal government was a, a little more generous than normal. And that gave people some options to uh, experiment, maybe a little more openness to some of these things. Some people say that we gave a lot of money and that's what led to this inflation. Other people disagree every day. They, they're squaring up and fighting in the back uh, about this. But the world didn't end. And also we saw child poverty go down by a half. So that is possible. You know, Damon, another thing about the pandemic that I think shifted some of people's perspective is people's perspective about their relationship to work more generally. And so there's a way in these conversations where saying like, oh, if you give people money, you know, woo woo, they're gonna not work. And that not working is held up as like the absolute <laughs> worst thing in the world, right? And I guess I wonder how you feel about if the pandemic has changed some people's relationships to the way we think about work, how you think about work, and if the goal is necessarily like that all of us should just work infinitely, or if there is a world in which like in a prosperous society that people work less or don't work and that's fine, or some people can't work, some people are disabled, or some people are elders or caretakers are doing other types of things. Basically, if you think we're in a place to think differently about like what is the purpose of work? Is it a measure of a good society that everybody works all the time? Or just how are you thinking about that and our relationship to work right now? That's a good question. There's a lot of attention played to whether people are working and whether that makes them more deserving of our social support. We need to push back on that notion that a program is good if it makes people work more and a program is bad if it makes people work less. A lot of times you hear this come from people who even fancy themselves as economists or economic policy experts. It's not even true that like fundamental whatever economic theory supports that. Everybody knows or everyone should know who's an economist should admit that when you work more, you're doing less of something else. There's a cost to working. When you don't work, you have time to do other things and you will do things that bring you pleasure. You will do things that are necessary. You know best how you should spend your time. The alternative is that they have no choice but to work. Hearing you say that just makes me think about people who are in a financial position where they have a safety net already. They have a cushion already. They know that their rent is paid. They know that, that their bills are taken care of because of familial wealth or other sources. And they either continue to work doing something that they love that's meaningful to them or they choose not to work and they, you know, travel the world and blog about it. And nobody's in a moral outrage about that. Damon Jones, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you. I have learned a lot. And I'm going to tell you something I've never told another podcast guest before, which is that I love you. Yeah. For listeners at home, Damon made a heart with his hands. Most of the people you hear talking about guaranteed income are probably economic policy type people like Damon. Our next guest is somebody who looks at this issue from a slightly different angle as a philosopher who thinks deeply about what equality even means. Let's get into it. My name is Juliana Bidadanovic. I grew up in France and I'm now based in California where I'm a professor of philosophy at Stanford University. And I am a philosopher of equality. So I think about why and how we should value equality in what forms and what can we do to get there. And I'm also the faculty director of the Stanford Basic Income Lab, which is a center that I founded in 2017 that's doing research on the politics, uh, economics, and philosophy of universal basic income and its cousin policies. In thinking about this podcast, we've spoken with economists, we've spoken with politicians and policymakers. You are the first philosopher. Actually, I'm pretty sure you're the first philosopher I've ever interviewed for anything. And so I wonder if you could tell us how your disciplinary training and your perspective as a philosopher brought you to this work. So first, I, I want to say I think everyone's a philosopher in, in one way or another. I'm just a professional one. 
I got two basic income through my work on freedom and equality. So it's a really value-based, values-first dive into policies. And, you know, one reason for that is simply that um, universal basic income, guaranteed income are often thought as instruments of freedom, you know, freedom to say no, uh, in part, to a range of forms of oppression because basic income gives you exit options, right? So it might be a way for you to leave an abusive relationship. It gives you the freedom to say no. And that's a very important aspect of being a free individual. It also more positively gives you some freedom to say yes as well. You can decide to maybe take a year of work to look after an aging parent or you know, to take more time to look after your kids after a particularly difficult year. So it's really, you know, through my interest in freedom that I really came to Universal Basic Income. And that's partly because I grew up uh, in a place where a lot of my neighbors, a lot of my community members were recipients of targeted benefits in France. And it was really stigmatized to be a recipient of those benefits. Politicians after politicians have demonized uh, persons for uh, being benefits recipients. So what really got me... I think first to universal basic income is this notion of normalizing public assistance, you know, really shifting our narratives on what it is that we owe each other and finding a system that's in a way over-inclusive, a system where you almost have to opt out not to get in order to build a very robust floor for all. I'm grateful for a lot of the safety nets that are in place in France and for universal healthcare, you know, and for a range of things that have made it possible for my low-income family and a range of other low-income families around me to live better than I think they would have here. Now, this said, you know, there are issues everywhere. I think there are issues around the way we design our safety nets, and there are really big problems with the way we treat people that do not earn enough to live, you know, in dignity or that do not earn at all. And I think the way even quite more progressive states have done it is just by designing those highly targeted safety nets and attaching a lot of conditions to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I went um, to university for free. So did my friends who, who came from wealthier families, right? I had all sorts of access to benefits and services in the same way as kids of wealthier families did. I think the system was far from perfect. There was still a lot of racism in the system, a lot of classism, of course. But I do think that if we can see as progressives the power of, you know, universal healthcare and universal quality education and universal childcare, I think we need to stop thinking in the same way about cash. Because what's true there, you know, that it's best to have a robust system that treats everyone the same and that really builds a sense of cohesion and builds a sense of, you know, all of us having a stake and all of us being in this together is really, really important. Even if, you know, behind the stages, we end up taxing people very differently, you know, based on their ability to contribute. But we recognize that the wealth that we co-produce should be distributed more fairly among all individuals and all families Uh, in those communities. And we also realize that the wealth that has been passed on to us by previous generations should be distributed more fairly. So this universal framing is a first step towards destroy some of those really problematic patterns of demonization. One of the things that we've tried to unpack so far in our conversations has been the difference between universal income and guaranteed income. And it sounds like you're advocating very specifically for universal policies, which is really different than some of the pilot initiatives that are happening here in Chicago and elsewhere that are more targeted. But for you, it seems like the universalism is actually intrinsic to what makes the effort valuable. So what do you think about, um, you know, some of these more targeted pilots? I think Universal basic income and guaranteed income are very close in at least one very important way. It's unconditional cash. And that means no strings attached and restricted. So those two movements are pushing in the same direction in that way because they are saying, you know, you need to trust individuals to use their money as they think is best. And this will bring about the best outcomes. And this is also the most respectful way to treat individuals. So when it comes to pilots, you know, of course, pilots are never going to be 
universal, right? Pilots are all doing really important work in shifting narratives and in testing out different options. Some of them are targeted to artists, you know, some, some of them are targeted to particular subgroups. Some of them are targeted by income. You know, there are a range of pilots out there, over a hundred in the US now, and each of them is bringing something unique and specific to the picture in understanding what would happen if a variety of populations were getting universal basic income or basic income or guaranteed income. So I do think that those pilots can be understood as jointly making the case that a lot of individuals in this country, including children, including expecting mom, including parents who've just had kids, including older folks, including people in work, people out of work, people who are really, really deprived, people who are a little bit better off, all of those people could really benefit from unconditional cash. Unconditional cash can do a lot for our communities, even if it isn't universal, right? You know, I find myself thinking back to one of the first things you said that I find so intriguing, which is that for you, this is fundamentally a question about freedoms. And I wonder if some of it has to do with that freedom that you're talking about, if the very premise of giving certain people some types of freedoms is what turns critics against these initiatives. And so I wonder where that leads you as kind of an advocate and what kinds of avenues you use to try to convince people of these ideas. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. I mean, it really depends on like who you're talking to. I mean, I think the freedom focus is particularly important in this country because it's meant to be this value that <laughs> precedes all others. And as we know, as we've created it, privileges the freedoms of some over the freedoms of others. So the basic, you know, idea behind basic income is to say, well, freedom is really important. We just need it for everyone. We, we don't need this, the kind of uh, system that enables a few to be maximally free and others to be maximally constrained. So that's you know an argument that's very much aimed to those who struggle and want slightly easier life. You know, everyone deserves a bit of time, not even for, you know, leisure, but for other forms of meaningful work, you know, because we tend to think of work as in paid labor, but there's a lot more, you know, meaningful work than that. There is childcare, there is caring for kids, there is caring for aging parents. I mean, I keep on going back to that example because, you know, many of us would, would hope to be there for our aging parents when the time comes. And many of us can't do that, can't make those choices. There's also, you know, just volunteering or, you know, building a community garden. And there are so many things that are meaningful to our communities that would be more meaningful and productive for our communities than taking on a second backbreaking job and not being able to spend time with your kids. So when I say that people need more of the freedom, including to reduce their paid work hours, it is because I think that people do want to work and there's also a lot of meaningful work that cannot happen because of that. Most people find themselves, especially here, constrained and living in uh, economic insecurity, unbearable amount of stress in their lives that comes with this uncertainty and this not knowing uh, if you're going to be fine and if your family is going to be fine. And I think it's going to take more than a guaranteed income to change that. It's going to take universal health care. It's going to take a lot more when it comes to parents knowing that their kids are going to a school that you know will enable for them to thrive and to learn safely. So many things are needed for the kind of feeling uh, reassured about the future, feeling less anxious. But Financial insecurity is a huge part of that. I also think one argument against guaranteed income or universal basic income that's very prominent, I would say, is it's too expensive. How can you possibly think about, you know, giving cash to all or most members of our community? So I think first, I want to say that there is some evidence that this injection of cash could help grow the economy. And, you know, that's in a way a, a more neoliberal way of thinking about the idea. It's not my favorite argument, but it's one argument. Another one is to say that simply poverty costs in so many respects. If you think about, you know, homelessness, the tragedy of homelessness, or if you think about crimes that are motivated by economic deprivation, if you think about death, if you think about incarcerations, if you think about policing, all of this is extremely expensive and we have it completely backwards. You know, if you invest in individuals, you invest in families and children and communities, then you see a population that's healthier, you see a reduction in crimes, and all of that is 
a ton of savings. So, you know, I didn't come at this from an economics perspective and I'm not an economist, I'm a philosopher, but, you know, I think that the cost concern for me is actually the easiest to handle because of what we know about how costly poverty actually is. It was super cool learning from Damon and Juliana a little bit about the theory and ideas behind guaranteed income and how it can change people's lives. Our final expert guest for this episode actually got to witness that impact. In 2017, Michael Tubbs became the youngest mayor in the history of Stockton, California, an office he held until 2021. And during that time, he started one of the country's first municipal guaranteed income programs. As Chicago's gearing up its guaranteed income pilots, we thought it would be good to learn from some of his experiences. Here's our conversation. I just want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your own journey and how you became a mayor of Stockton, California. Yeah, I'm born and raised in Stockton, California, Stockton's home. And then I went to college and learned about policy and learned how sort of things about my neighborhood or even about my city that I felt were unjust or unfair weren't these acts of God. Like literally policy choices, we could map the ways in which freeways were built and decimated certain communities. Like it, was, it was wild to me. I was like, oh my gosh, like these are actually human behavior and human decisions that are driving these outcomes. And that always just stuck with me. And I thought it'd be cool to support folks in Stockton who are going to be in office. I had no intention of doing so. Longer story short, I interned in the White House my junior year. Obama was president then, and my job was working with mayors and councils. And just seeing what mayors and councils were doing at a local level just really solidified my thinking. Like, wow, maybe the union of change in this country isn't national. <laughs> maybe it's city council, mayor, school board. While I had that epiphany, my cousin, Donnell James II, was murdered at a house party. And it was really sort of that juxtaposition between being in the quote-unquote seat of power, the White House, and feeling very powerless. And thinking, like, what am I doing to impact this issue in my community? Or what's the point of all this individual success that my family was back home, like, literally, not even dying metaphorically, like, literally dying. So I decided to run for city council. And then I spent four years on city council and realized that in addition to the authority the mayor has, probably the biggest power a mayor has is influence in the platform, in the bully pulpit. And just realized that for the issues I care about, poverty and opportunity, being the mayor would provide me the bully pulpit so that the whole city would have to pay attention. Even if they agreed or disagreed, there would have to be a response in a way that wasn't necessarily the case when I was a council member representing a particular district. Wow. First of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of your cousin. And I know that even though that was some years ago, that that's not something that goes away. So my, my prayers are with you and, and your family. Well, thank you. Oftentimes people attribute, you know, poverty, struggle in communities, disinvestment. They attribute it to people, but they attribute it to the other people, right? They attribute it to the people that are experiencing it. And is that something that you heard or witnessed or even felt yourself growing up? Like, you know, our neighborhoods look this way because we don't care and we can't get it together. Yeah, that's always been so interesting to me because I grew up in Black church and I understand sort of the need to stress agency particularly when structures are, are, are such that it, it, it can be easy to be nihilistic or give up. My community, my family, and my church family did an amazing job of brainwashing me to only see sort of my own effort and my own ability, which I think it's important for kids to feel like powerful, that they like their circumstances aren't their fault and aren't necessarily, they have to be that way forever. But I am always fascinated now, particularly in, in, in the work I do, that there's so much emphasis, like overemphasis on sort of individual choices and not on wider structures. And I would tell people all the time in Stockton, like, I don't have the time nor the ability to change every single person's micro decisions. But what I can do is change structures so that the environments in which people make decisions are differently. And I think on poverty issues in California, the way we've been socialized is that even if you're in poverty, poverty in and of itself is definitely a bad thing, but it's also a reflection of a lack of morality, a lack of ethics, a lack of 
luck, a lack of ability. So many people from all spectrums have really internalized this idea that to be in poverty is a reflection of your worth and your ability and your value. Man, that is that is a word. It seems like you entered the office knowing that that was something that you wanted to tackle. You know, of all the possible pathways to take, why is this something that you decided to pursue as a civic leader? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question because we spent a lot of time thinking of all the different sort of policy interventions we could use on poverty. And before I was in politics, I thought I wanted to be a superintendent of schools. Same, except for the politics part. But I did also once think that I wanted to be a school superintendent. So we need to be in some sort of recovery support group. So in my master's program in education and policy, I spent a lot of time thinking about education as the way to break cycles of poverty, right? When I became mayor, I didn't have direct control over schools. And I told my staff, like, I don't want to do any programs. Like, I don't want to do anything that's not a policy, a law, something that we are uniquely able to do. I said, I want to at least provide something for folks to respond to. And I think it was really born from that spirit of research in terms of not being wedded to being right initially, but very wedded to getting it right. (laughs) And, And is realizing that in terms of all the interventions, the one that felt the most risky, but the one I felt required the most courage would be to actually give people money and just go against how we deliver services to folks, how we govern, go against the entire paradigm around the economy and who and how it works. So that's how we decided to do the guaranteed income, the $500, with the idea being, let's see if it works, because we knew that poverty wasn't working. Take us back to that time before everybody was getting checks from COVID, before certain presidential candidates were making it part of their platform. What was people's response when you were like, okay, I have an idea. What if we gave folks cash? I was shocked at how much people cared, honestly. And that time it was all philanthropic dollars, thanks to the Economic Security Project. So I, I, like my team kept talking about the risk. I'm like, this, what's the risk? It's not our money. Like, They're going to spend their money somewhere. Why not spend it here in Stockton? And for me, it was also wanting to be able to help kind of message and talk about it and talk about it in a way that I felt would be helpful and not hurtful mm. to, to folks in poverty. But the reaction was ages and races, and, and, and especially at the intersected. I was 27 years old at the time we announced the pilot. Every headline was, Black mayor does basic income, which I thought was just so <laughs> weird. Not Stockton mayor. Right. It was always young black mayor, young black mayor, young black mayor. I remember the day we announced we were doing the guaranteed income program. That same day, former Vice President Joe Biden gave a speech in West Virginia, and someone asked him about basic income. And he was like, no, people need to work. Like, it was so it, this, the whole paradigm around cash and work and value is different. So it's a little bit scary to step out in that void. I remember like praying and meditating and thinking like, well, I know I'm smart, but I can't be smarter than everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. the fact that there's already been a discussion somehow, consensus has been reached that this can't work before we tried. I was like, am I missing something? But what I realized is that a lot of the ways our society is organized are by people's imaginations or lack thereof. And under actual, not even rigorous analysis, like even a little bit of pushing, all that stuff comes crashing. You're like, oh, wait, wait oh, 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 wait, that's mm-hmm. not actually how. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the reaction wasn't even all from like conservatives. I had like Democrats and liberals and progressives saying, this is the Trojan whore. It was just, it was. <laughs> It was a wild time. I remember when we started having to step back and say, okay, this is not just about doing this experiment, but this is also a narrative fight. When you say Trojan horse, a Trojan horse for what? You know, people come at it from different ways. And there are some folks who want to, like, get rid of all government benefits and just replace it and give everyone the same amount of money. From the beginning, that doesn't make sense because if I don't need a housing voucher and you need a housing voucher, what does it make sense to take away your housing voucher to give us both money? Like we have to be very equitable in, in terms of how, how we think about this. But a lot of people are really worried about that, particularly because there's some folks who approach this from libertarian angle. And then we had some folks thinking that somehow $500 on the left and the right, that $500 is going to replace work. And even without the data, that just sounded dumb to me because I was like, I don't know anyone who can live off $500 a month. I was like, I don't know anyone's going to stop working because I got $500. But I think part of it was people not recognizing that 
the vast majority of people who can find work actually do work in our country. Like folks who can't find work is for a variety of reasons, often economic, like can't afford childcare or transportation, or they're differently abled and aren't able to have traditional works, or they're students, or they're children, or there's barriers to their employment because of previous incarceration, et cetera. So that was a Trojan horse as well that we're just going to stop, like, instead of raising wages, instead of providing jobs, I'm, even people are like, I'm more for a jobs guarantee than a guarantee. Like, it was just so weird how upset people were. And I'm like, how are we more upset at a potential cure than the sickness? Like, there's more discussion about what we could do better than, like, the fact that what's necessitating this paradigm shift is that the, it's not working, y'all. And not saying we haven't done good things. But we have to do more and better because the underlying problem still remains the same. Let's unpack that thing about work a little bit. What do you think people are really saying when they say, well, if we do this, people won't work? I think when we think about our country, founded on land theft, genocide, and 400 years of free labor, and then hundreds of years of convict labor, and specifically saying some people are here for labor, and some people are here for leisure. You said it's a French way, too. You said leisure. Okay, it's not just leisure. Yeah. It's leisure. <laughs> yeah, leisure. But to get wealthy off the labor of others. And that underlying kind of economic relationship or caste has not changed, right? And I think this idea of guaranteed income really upsets some people because all of a sudden now people have more agency. Because with $500 a month, I can't necessarily quit working but I have a life raft to decide what types of conditions I will and will not tolerate. Particularly during the pandemic, like, no, actually, I'm going to stay home for these two weeks and not get COVID. Like, I'm not so desperate that this is the only means of survival is if I take this job no matter what conditions. Or even if I might die. Literally, even if I might die. Historically, Black people, Native people, people of color, women of color in particular, have always been seen as needing to work and not needing rest or breaks. I mean, we were talking about 100 years ago with a country with no worker benefits, <laughs> like, like the idea of collective bargaining. So it, I, it became very apparent to me that we're just literally fighting a whole hegemonic structure in terms of how we have organized ourselves as a society. And that was just going to take sort of time. And then the other thing is I've never heard someone making median income or below, saying they derive their dignity from work. They talked a lot about dignity and purpose and when to be useful and when to be helpful. But most of the time they talk about work is about all the ways in which work treated them without dignity. Part of it, too, it's like, let's disentangle these two and like talk about how you no know, dignity is inherent to one's humanity. And if that's the case, then they should go to work and be treated with dignity. Not that I have dignity because I work. I think also just broadening the definition of work because that definition is so limiting, particularly all the work that, that like the work that women majority do, the, the work we call the essential, caregiving, domestic labor, et cetera. Like the idea that because folks do that in their homes, not next door at someone else's house, they don't have dignity. People want to feel like they have a purpose. People want to feel useful. People want to contribute. Yeah, something you just said that I want to really underline is like the status quo, both historically and in the contemporary moment, assumes that this is fine, right? That a very few people being very wealthy over the accumulation of wealth from many other people who are presumed to work until they die and work in ways that make them feel very disposable at times, that that's fine and that that's okay and that that's preferable than taking the risk of trying something else and having the imagination to try something else. If this thing was working for like a lot of people, even if it worked for the majority of people, I could be like, well, I mean, yeah, I get it. But literally, when we launched a pilot, one in two people in this country cannot afford one $500 emergency. So like, it's not working for the majority of us. So that's what always gets me. It's like, it's not like this is like a system that's working well for everyone. For those of us who have never been to Stockton, if you were going to make a postcard that says Stockton, California, wish you were here, you know, what's on the postcard? What do we need to know? Paint a picture for us. Yeah, Stockton, you have literally the whole world, the most diverse metro area in the country. So I mean like white folks, black folks, African immigrants, 
Latino folks, Chicanos, but also folks from other parts of Latin America. You have a huge Southeast Asian population. Like the oldest Sikh temple in North America is in South Stockton. Like how random is that? You have a lot of Sikhs, a lot of Punjabis. You have um, a lot of Southeast Asians, a lot of Hmong people, a lot of Cambodian folks, like a lot of folks who have fled like genocide or war, economic deprivation and have settled in the States. But I mean, diversity is not necessarily tolerance, right? You got a whole bunch of people who look different. That doesn't mean they all play along. And like most parts of this country, Stockton has a legacy of, of racism and redlining and, and marginalization and over-incarceration that's created like really wild outcomes and disparate outcomes for, from people. We're just like literally two Stocktons or, or, or three different Stocktons. But I always say it's very tribal. There's like families that have been there for, for generations, every different ethnic group. The food's amazing and very young city too. I think the average age when I was mayor, was 28 years old. Yeah, so like very, very young city. Oh, wow. What did it look like on the ground for people to receive this income? What did it do for people to know that certain things were going to be guaranteed for them? We saw people be able to pay off a little bit of credit debt, get their credit scores up, people able to afford down payment for an apartment where they could keep up with the monthly payments, but they could never get ahead enough for that three months down. People able to go back to work because they're able to get their car fit. So they're able to pay for childcare. We have people who are able to brace themselves for economic shocks, COVID notwithstanding, which we had no idea was coming in the, in the next year, but someone getting sick or having to take care of a parent or a loved one. It was just fascinating to see how just a little bit of cash allowed people to build economic resilience. Um, the two I always talk about, one is Zane, and we had the governor Newsom come down right when COVID had hit in Stockton. And it's before we had like the testing sites and everything set up. And I had no idea she was going to say this. I had no idea she was, what she was going to say. And she starts crying, and she's like, I just want to thank God for you, Mayor Tubbs, because I was sick three weeks ago. Mm. And I didn't know where to get tested for COVID, and the lines were too long. I was able to stay home for two weeks and not go to work and infect everyone I work with because I had $500. And she said, without that, I would have been forced to go to work. Mm-hmm. I had that $500 to keep me safe. And it turns out she actually did have COVID. Mm-hmm. And she said, I just feel thankful that I didn't infect other people. And that was like really important to her. And I thought about that like, wow, money as a public health intervention. Another gentleman, Tomas, and he talked about how the $500 allowed him to interview. And when he first said that, I thought he had spent $500 on the interview. And I was like, oh, they said folks are going to know how to spend this money. He just got scammed. I'm like, ugh. So I'm looking at my staff, like, why is he up here? Y'all should screen this a little bit better. And then being curious, I said, half joking, you paid $500 for an interview? And he laughed and he says, no, I don't have paid time off. I work part time. And there's been jobs I've been qualified for. But I've never been able to apply because that would require me taking a day off work. Mm. And he said, what people don't understand is that I know with 100% certainty what my bill is going to be in two weeks. I don't have 100% certainty that I'll get this job. Right. But I do know if I miss a day of work, I'm I miss fired. a day of wages. And I'm not, and I'm a fire now, or I'm not going to pay the bills I have. Right, right. But he said, so I never was able to. But the $500 the first month allowed me to take a day off so I could interview. And I got the job. Now I work less hours, now it's a full-time job, now I have benefits. And then he wrote this beautiful op-ed last year in Newsweek talking about how guaranteed income allowed him to parent and how he knows his kids so much better now because he's present, he's home, he's not stressed, he's not anxious, and he's able to do things. Like he found out his daughter like science. He was able to buy her a telescope and he was able to take her to the aquarium. And he's like, I feel like such an active part of my children's lives in a way I wasn't before, and, just, and I was doing all I could to provide and working two and three jobs. And those stories really stuck, stick with me. They measured those who received the guaranteed income and those who didn't on the Kessler scale. Like, they started out both at elevated levels of stress on the Kessler scale, but those who received the guaranteed income after just one year were down to normal levels of stress and anxiety, while those who didn't actually had their stress and anxiety increase. Like... Comparable in terms of the Delta to clinical trials of like Prozac. And not to say that medicine is not important, but to say that maybe some of the stress and anxiety and mental illnesses we have in our society are caused by 
absurd nature of poverty. Giving people a little bit of money will actually help us manage our mental health issues in a way that just medicine can't. One of the questions you've been asked a lot is, are people going to use the money to buy drugs? What do you hear when you hear that question? And why do you think that's the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds? They're going to use the money to buy drugs. Yeah, I'm like, people are so racist. <laughs> Every time you're like, it's so racist. Like, either drugs, I also get Jordans a lot, too. But I'm sure you get that from people of color yeah, oh, oh, who have inter- yeah, who've internalized that idea. Across the, <laughs> from Latino folks, black folks, white folks, Democrats, Republicans, I get that. Drugs and Jordans. Yeah, drugs, drugs and, and Jordans. Jordans. But I think it's just part of how we've been socialized and how, again, we look at pathology as the cause of one's economic situation, when in many cases, pathology could also be a response to dysfunctional systems or adverse systems or um, structures that are broken. Because I, I think what, what gets it for me, we're literally talking about government doing what it can to ensure that people have their basic human needs met, like the basic things required to be human. But I think it also goes back to the fact that for so long and continued to this day, some people in this country are just not viewed as human or equally human. So the idea that they would spend money the way you spend money is ludicrous to you. Like, you mean this person who has no money is smart enough to know how to pay off their bills or is smart enough to know how to Buy food for their children? Yes. To get to universal basic income, we have to get to universal basic humanity. Like, like, like we all are equally human and all deserve shelter, food, and none of those things have to be earned. You need that to be human. And, and I think that's part of why they're like, they're going to spend money on drugs and alcohol because for some reason, folks think that folks who have less money than them are dumber than them make drastically different life choices than them and have different needs than they have. If you were at an event and somebody came up to you, you're at the grocery store in Stockton and somebody comes up to you and says, Mayor Tubbs, I'm so grateful that I got to participate in this program and I got my first check and I went out and I bought some Air Force Ones. What would you think? What would your response be? I'd be like, (laughs) I'm an honest person. I would tell them, Look, I'm a sneakerhead too. Yeah. Um, don't 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 tell nobody. <laughs> like, keep that to yourself. Keep that on the keep low. low. But, but it also like good for you. Those things worth five hundred dollars. So I'm sure you spend it on other things too. Right. So maybe right. talk about the other things you did with your money. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I would be like, that's great. Good for you. Can I see them? What was the colorway? What size? Did you get them? Were they new? Were they retail? Did you camp out? Were you on hype? You know, like. <laughs> Do you think that the people asking you those questions have never spent any of their paycheck on shoes, drugs, and alcohol? I tell people all the time, audit my little $3 million we did in Stockton and compare it to the 2017 Trump $2 trillion in taxpayer money tax cuts. I know people with a lot of money and I've been to like their parties and stuff. There's a lot of alcohol. Audit that this open bar is expensive, right? Like, like, like I mean, like, look, 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 the boy that crashed the crypto system, living in the Bahamas with his friends, throwing crazy parties and stuff. But we also give some people the ability to spend frivolously, but they deserve it. They work hard. Like, like even if, even when that data point comes back, it'll still be okay because some people, well, they earned it, deserve to have vacation, and some people deserve to have fun. Life is so much more than like. Being able to pay rent. Like, that's an important part. But to your point, we should be able to enjoy our lives. And and I was going to say earlier, one of the powerful things about guaranteed income that I've learned is that in a system as complex as ours, there's not going to be one solution and there's not going to be an easy fix. This is a very particular tool. Focus on income. Focus on sort of cost of living. But for example, this is not focus on wealth. This is not focused on sort of building assets. It's not focused on sort of racial and gender wealth gaps. This is strictly about income. And we know that income and wealth are different. If we could solve for this and solve for income and solve for poverty, it makes those other things easier to solve for. And number two, what we saw, particularly in the pandemic, in terms of the rise in collective organizing and labor organizing, is that if you give people just a little bit to breathe and live, They'll organize, build power, form critiques, 
reimagine systems themselves. Like, it doesn't have to come from one central person, entity, or idea. And I think the conversation about guaranteed income actually makes it easier to have these other conversations because it does say that capitalism as it's currently constructed in our country is not working if we still have to give people money. And we need to have a conversation about why is that and, and, and what are the other parts of the system that we, that we need to improve on, change, get rid of, etc. The conversations with our expert guests have me thinking a lot about work and value, how we find value in our own lives, inside and outside and beyond work, and the things we make and exchange in the world. It seems to me that there's a whole lot we've internalized as a society about the idea of providing the basics for everybody as somehow being wrong or immoral or wasteful. A lot of people seem to believe that in a way that informs the way they, maybe you, someone listening right now, think about guaranteed income. And that's got me thinking a lot about this question of deserving. Don't all of us deserve the ability to choose where and how and for whom we work, if we want to be married or not, how we spend the limited time we have on this earth? Is that something only some people deserve because they make enough money? What would it look like if those freedoms were guaranteed for everybody? Our guests all made it pretty clear that that's not something we can accomplish with cash alone. But it strikes me as not a bad start. But enough of these experts, no shade to them. But in the next several episodes, I'm so excited that we'll get to actually meet some folks who are participating in these pilots. We'll learn about who they are, what they love and care about most, the challenges they've faced, and what becomes possible for them when a few basic things in their life suddenly become guaranteed. Guaranteed is created by Respair Production and Media and me, your host, Eve Ewing, with the support of the Economic Security Project, with super special thanks to Jenna Severson for her assistance. Our producers are the incredible Damon Williams, Daniel Kisslinger, and Jeanette Harris-Kortz. And our theme music is the song Woof by Sen Morimoto. See you next time. <laughs>